Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. If you've been moved by a documentary in the past 40 years, there's a chance you have Sheila Nevins to thank. As head of HBO Documentary Films since 1979, she's exerted more influence on the medium than perhaps anyone in its history. So much so that the New York Times says filmmakers, quote, fret about her outsized power, but also worry about what will happen when she's gone. Sheila Nevins has overseen the production of literally hundreds of documentaries which have won dozens of Oscars. And she's credited, or blamed, for being one of the creators of reality television through 90s hits like Real Sex and Taxi Cab Confessions. Whether they're shot in a war zone or the back of a taxi, Sheila Nevin's productions are powerful, brazen, and unflinchingly honest. But when it comes to telling her own story, truth gets trickier. Her new book, You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales, blends fiction and reality. It's not a bio. As someone said to me, it's a sly memoir. Who counseled you on how to write the book? Who? Nobody. Nobody? Nobody. You knew instinctively to do this this way? I have no idea it was right. I knew when to hide, and I knew when to overhear, and I knew the names of the characters without ever... Some of them are Sheila, and some of them are Priscilla or Melissa... And, um, I was going to do that in my book, and I didn't. Maybe you're nicer than me. Right. More honest. I, I just more honest, felt I just... that when I gave the character name, I protected a lot of people. Or when I overheard it, I wasn't in it. And then I could write more freely about the truth of it. I don't know that I could have written certain things if it had been me. In her book, Nevins uses a few characters to paint a portrait of the male-dominated world she navigated. Only one of those characters is named Sheila Nevins, but they're all strong, smart women who fight and sleep their way to the top. In a way, the sexual politics of the 60s and 70s is a sideshow. Sheila Nevin's true passion is to immerse herself in the lives of her subjects. And like many passions, this one makes you suffer. I mean, I think if you're a surgeon, the person is anesthetized when you're cutting out their heart. But when you're making a documentary, the person is alive and kicking. And they stay with you. Um, you know, I, I can't explain it. When you go to sleep at night, they, they interrupt counting sheep. You know, you see, you see sadness all the time. There's a lot of suffering in this world. There's a lot of people who have no way out. Mm-hmm. I mean, Powerless. we have a way out. Right. We have a way out. We have more options. We have yeah. more options. And without empathy, there's no humanity. And I think docus are the last resort for effective, if that's the right use of the word, feeling for someone you didn't know. This is the great thing about a docu. You turn it on, it's in your living room, okay? You didn't invite it. You thought, I'll try it. And then suddenly you're crying for someone you never knew before. Mm-hmm. And they're not, it's not an actor playing a part. It's not something that was scripted. It's another human being trying to live in this country or another country. And it stays with you. It's very difficult. I mean, you really, you really agonize. I agonize. I'm not happy. (laughs) (laughs) 
Just walk into that closet full of Emmys and Oscars you have, and maybe that'll yeah, that brighten your spirits. Yeah, that doesn't make spirits. you happy. They usually fall on your foot I'm and teasing. crack your toe. They're, they're door stoppers for most people I don't <laughs> have them. But pick one if you can, and tell us a bit about one that really, really just crushed you. What was one that was an extraordinarily difficult experience for you to bring that film to the public? Maybe the one about Tourette's, even though it was by far not the best documentary on HBO, but because... I had been there 25 years before I was willing to come out as a parent of a child who had Tourette's. And Your son. My son, David, yeah. And so I think that um, with his permission, uh, I was able to write about it in my book, but mainly I was able to make a film for schools so that kids that had Tourette's would not be bullied because it was, um, you know, if you were fat, you were bullied. If you stuttered, you were bullied. But if you had Tourette's, nobody knew what you had. They thought you were dopey. They'd push you. They'd imitate you. This one was tough because I had to go to my bosses and say, I want to make this film about Tourette's. It doesn't affect everybody. I want to do it for my kid. And this is a big place called HBO. And they said, do it. You've earned it. And I did it. Now, for people who don't understand Tourette's beyond, you know, the outbursts, the vocal outbursts and so forth, when did you when do you first become aware of a child having that? At what age does it exhibit itself? Well, the vocal outbursts are less than five percent. Right. So the fact that that's called coprolalia, and um, that means that you yell four letter words. Can I say them on this show? I think our audience is well have uh, the full I glossary. I figured if you're them. here, they so know. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> the kid who yells "fuck shit, piss, piss fuck you, fuck you in your ass, your mother, fuck," yeah. that is less than five percent. Right. But the media has it's the most. It, first of all, it gave the media a chance to use the words. Yeah and bleep them and make it exciting. And secondly, it was unfair to the kids. Yeah, it's Amy because... Poehler and Deuce Bigelow. <laughs> yes, she does that, I yeah. Guess. yeah. But um, people like Robin Williams, there's also a very interesting part of Tourette's, which is called echolalia. He had that? Yes, where imitative behavior is part of the affliction. So in other words, you go to a movie, you come back, the kid does the whole the, almost the whole movie, right. and does the the actual sounds of the voices of the different people. But the film was difficult for you and painful. It was very painful because, for one, I had to tell David we were going to do it. Two, um, he had to be willing to come out as a kid who had Tourette's. We both agreed that it was a necessary film. It wasn't great, but it was useful. You know, there, there are different kinds of docus. What about a filmmaker, meaning you have people coming in they all, you know, many of them want something from you. They, they want you to help well, make I a project. Cast, I cast the films the way you would cast a movie, uh, you know, and I, I try to find filmmakers who have a passion for a subject, and then I try to put them together with that subject. So if it's Mia Maximum Culpa about abuses, let's say, in the Catholic Church, I'll find someone who is a renegade Catholic to be able to go after it, both with the passion of being a kid who's brought up that way, and at the same time, someone who's able to look at it with with the right amount of subjective involvement. And in that case, it turned out to be Alex Gibney. But it's very different. I mean, Alexandra Pelosi is doing a film for us now on... Everybody says, let's do an anti-Trump film, okay? I must get five pitches a day about, let's do this, let's do who voted, let's do the Democrats who voted, let's do the women, the college graduates. Every day there's something. And so it occurred to us that maybe what we should do is go back to the Founding Fathers. Maybe we should go back to the dream of what democracy was. And so this film is about the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and the Bill of Rights. And I watched it last night pretty late, and I found myself getting weepy over the dream. 
you know, not laughing at it, but weepy over the original... The beauty of it. The beauty of it. Mm. The beauty of being free from the king. And in the descriptions of breaking away from the king, it was as if it was on, you know, CNN that night. Mm -hmm. The king had just transmigrated into somebody else. And it was terrifying and also illuminating about the prophetic vision of the Founding Fathers. It's really extraordinarily interesting and at the same time, you know, complex. But, you know, this whole country was founded on getting away from from a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. So who's someone, and I'm being euphemistic here, when you have the agenda in the morning and you come into the office and you see this name is coming in to see you and you got really excited. Who's a filmmaker you thought, oh, God, he's coming in today or she's coming in today. Who's someone you just loved working with? I love working with John Alpert because he's fearless. Because we send him to Baghdad uh, to the green zone and um, just to look at wounded GIs. And he called me up and he said, there's a real story here of the camaraderie of the wounded to the wounded. Can I stay? And I was very moved by it because I felt that I had earned the right to say without checking through the hierarchy, stay there. Just stay there and tell his story. And you did. And we did. And we were able to stay there. It's called Baghdad ER. Okay. And it turned out to be about a hospital. And in the process, there was a young Marine who was dying. And he dies in the process of the film. And we film it. And um, he was a Marine. And the Army, I guess you call it the Army, said that we could use the footage provided the mother would see the film. We called her. Turns out she was an emergency room nurse. And she said, may I see this film? You know, at this point, I'm not intimidated by much. But I was intimidated by this woman watching the death of her child. Paula came in to HBO, and she came with her husband, and she said, may I see it alone? And we put it on, and I kissed her. I didn't even know her. And I shut the door, and we played it. And she watched her son die. She came out, and she said, come here. And I thought, oh, my God, what did I do? What did I do just for this great scene? I'm such a fuck-up. She came in. She said, my son got the same care there that he would have gotten in a hospital in New York City. There was a priest over him who was Catholic, and he said a prayer, and she said, do me one favor, sweetheart, just cover his face. I don't want his friends to see him go. And she became the associate producer of the next film because a year later I called her, this is the thing when something stays with you because all you can think of is what if it was my son? And a year later I called her up and I said, Paula, how are you? She said, I'm with Robert. Robert was the name of her son. So I said, you know, I figured she was in church. What do I I didn't know her that well. And she was in Arlington. She was in Section 60 of Arlington where the wounded that didn't make it, you know, the, the young men and women who died um, in Af Afghanistan and Iraq were buried. It's a special section. And I said, you're with Robert? She said, yes, I'm at Arlington. And I said, what are you doing there? She said, I'm talking to Robert. And I said, are you alone? She said, no, there are lots of people here. There are relatives, there are children, there are friends, you know. I called up John Albert and I said, John. I said, oh, first I said, Paula, how long will you be there? She said, I'm going to stay till tomorrow. And I said, would you mind if John came? Because she had known him from Baghdad ER. And uh, John went. They hid in a tree and they watched the full house of people coming to be with their lost children. 
Uh, there was a guy there. I think it's one of the best films we ever did. Mm. There was a guy there. I'm sorry, all you other people who made films. They're good, too. But this one really got me. <laughs> there was a guy there who was the uncle of a dead soldier, and he brought him his favorite drink, and he spilled it on the grave. And it was a chilly day mm. in June, and Paula had taken off her coat and put it over Robert's grave so he wouldn't be cold. It was a surreal, amazing experience, and... um you can't drive by Arlington anymore without that resonating in you, the tremendous loss and sorrow. And then there was a kid there who came to put flowers on it. It was a little tiny little girl, maybe three or four, putting flowers on her daddy's grave because it was her birthday. And she wanted to know that she missed him. And then, so in the midst of all this, the drink being poured, the coat on the grave, you couldn't write this. There's no way you could write this. If somebody wrote it, they'd think it was schmaltz. Let me ask you this, which is uh, maybe some kind of a stereo track. You can, um, uh, you can try to paint a picture for me of what the, what the company was like when you started. Because I, I always joke with people that HBO, when I was first living in New York in the early 80s, HBO would come on, and they had that theme song that sounded like an Israeli folk song. It was an Israeli folk song. Yeah, that song would come on. Then they would play the same. It was like MTV. They played Billy Idol and Flock of Seagulls all day long. They had the same two fucking videos over and over again. And HBO showed... Don't knock it. It's my home. No, no. And HBO showed... What was that show? Brian Ben-Ben? Dream On. Brian Ben Ben Dream On, the right. husband of Madeline Stowe, the great right. Madeline Stowe. And uh, so in that time, how has it changed? And how has it changed for you as a woman in the business since in your time? I'm not sure how much it's changed. Okay. I would really? argue, I don't think so. I don't really think so. I think I was an anomaly, so I was not a threat. Because who else was going to work 20 hours a day, have a sick kid, take all the jokes, do the whole thing? I've had nine bosses and. 35 years, it's pretty hard because each one was a magic slate. So anything you'd done before was unknown or not necessarily valid to them because they had to reestablish themselves. Mm. So it was, listen, I'm not complaining. Yeah. I've had the greatest job in the world. But um, I was an anomaly. Who, what woman wanted to work 20 hours a day? Who wanted to do docus anyway? It was an eight-hour service. So what was tough for you as a woman? What was hard? Not getting pinched. That's the great advantage to getting older. You're no, only there from that. the neck up. The hanky-panky's over. Yeah, yeah, it's neck up now. But you had to endure that in the early days? Maybe. Okay. I want to keep my job. Okay. But not even on Most your job. Most of those people are but gone. Does it, does, but it doesn't yes, matter. of course I had right. to do, deal with that. Of course I did. And okay. I dealt with it readily and aggressively and happily because right. I didn't know any better. And I, I, I mean, I've discussed this with Gloria Steinem. It was the only thing I knew. I wanted that job badly. I wanted to make something of it. And if it required you know, a hand on a knee or whatever else. Um, you overlooked. I looked, but then I turned away. I wouldn't say I overlooked. I felt it deep down, but I, I but did You weren't compromised in some, in some extreme way. People just took casual liberties with you. I thought it was the rules of the game. I thought it was the rules of the game. Why would I know? It was like shooting a gun. You know, I don't like it, but I, I need to learn how. I knew that was the way. I did what I had to do. You didn't want me to not get this job, did you? I, I'm glad that you were as open-minded as you were <laughs> to no, the benefit was, of the documentary I was, uh, film community. happily slutty. Happily so. Because I didn't know anything else. The job was worth more than my sexual identity. Wow. There were no human resources to protect me. There was nothing. And I was pretty... You, 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 no, you had no protector. No. That's no amazing. protector. And I wanted to do it. And I didn't want him to time? give it away. Yeah. I just had just gotten married. Yeah. 
at the time. Yes. Would you go home and like? Did your husband know that you were enduring all this groping and no, all this crap? I, but no, because I could brush him. it off. Right. You know, I've done a lot of shows with hookers. And I've done a lot of stuff at Cat House in Las Vegas. Were the men being taken advantage of or the women? Have you ever seen our Cat House show? They bought 100 books, the Cat House. You see, I don't have anyone else I They're know who bought 100 book books. They're handing your book the desk of the They're Cat They're probably house. giving it out. Now, uh, the book. The book. When you make films and you, you get involved... You're giving notes. You're telling them, I'm watching the clip of you from Alexandra's thing where you're saying, I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored. <laughs> and w what you were looking for in a film, what you were expecting of a filmmaker of a film, did you expect the same of yourself when you wrote this book? No. You did? Okay, talk about that. No. Why? Because in a strange way, I wrote the book in a very selfish way. And when I'm in an editing room, I don't think I'm particularly selfish. I wrote it because... I didn't want to be the legend of documentaries. I didn't want to be a docu-diva. What did you want to be? I wanted to be a person, like everybody else. Are you in this book? I think so. Or, or would you I say that there's I... some writing here that's the equivalent of the plastic surgery of writing? Without question. There's a lot of plastic surgery in this book. Not a lot. There's enough. Okay, I'll take that back. I mean, okay. you said yeah. I look good, so it must be enough, not well, a lot. Well, and if the book sells, good for you. If the, if the book does as I'm well as you look... I'm on the best-seller list then next week. Then the Can book is doing as well that? as you look. So the no. plastic surgery in the writing as well... that's only part of it. That's only part of it. Why does everybody pick up the plastic surgery? I remember the lawyer from... Um, McMillan asking me if there was someone named Melissa. L Melissa Van Holdenvoss sleeps with her boss. It's the 60s, and she can't get ahead any other way. And um, he called, and he said, do you know anyone named Melissa? And Mr. Pennybroth is the name of the boss. Now, who is named Mr. Pennybroth? Let's be real. It's a great name. He said, "Is but it just came. The name came. Um, uh, Mr. Pennybroth, uh, you know, fucked Melissa, and Melissa got a promotion. And it was 1963. It wasn't her fault. And that's the way, those were the rules of the game, right? Well, I mean, they drove me crazy. Is there anyone named Melissa at HBO? I said, I'm sure there are a number of women named Melissa here. Is there a Mr. Pennybroth? Have you ever worked for Mr. Pennybroth? I said, nobody would have the name Mr. Pennybroth. They said, you never know. So then I looked in the, you know, I typed it into my iPad. I couldn't find a Pennybroth. Similar. But I don't know where those names came from. So is it really, am I hiding if there's nobody by that name? Then who is it? Then it must be me, right? I don't know the answer. But I mean, <laughs> I don't, still don't know. It might not be the bravest writing in the world, but it's very I'm interesting writing. I'm not brave. Right. I never would say I was yeah. brave. I'm honest. It's oh, no, also no, about I, I, adultery. It's also about uh, I don't care, but falling in and out of love. It's also about anti-Semitism. It's also about... Your heart being broken. Well, can, can we pick? Well, the, let's stop to, there. Let's talk with can we broken pick, can, heart. Can we pick one topic? There? Well, yeah. do, do, you talked about know. adultery. Oh, who's adultery? Certainly not my own. Okay, not your own. How do I know? Those eyes of yours. It's amazing. <laughs> You've got those wonderful eyes. They're all and made they, up. And, and they're, they're real. Uh, in the morning, they don't look uh, like no, this. No, no, no. I, I, I don't want to know what they look like in the morning. That's not my business. <laughs> That's not my business. Uh, You've been happily married to Sydney yes, all these years, of yes, course. Yes, yes. And... Did you ever describe what it's like for you to fall in love? Because you're a pretty tough broad. You're a pretty no-nonsense woman. You're tough. Well, I mean... In a good I, way. How, what's it like to fall in love? Love redefines itself as you get older. When you fell in love with him, what did you fall in love with? Sydney or my heartbreak in my book? Both. Well, okay. take, take to Sydney first. No, my heartbreak first. Okay. My heartbreak. <laughs> this is my show. No, go ahead. No, it's my show it, now. It is, it is I mean, now. Not, where would you be without me sitting here? You'd be talking to yourself. Heartbreak happens once. 
I believe. Real heartbreak. And what happened? You don't repair. Describe so the situation. Then, well, do what you do in your book. The woman in the third person meets who? Sometimes I'm myself, sometimes I'm not. I'm really quite crazy. Though it's a young girl who goes to the Yale Drama School. She falls in love with a guy. She goes home to his very fancy house in Connecticut with initials on the thing and Gilbert Stewart pictures and all that. He goes to Harvard. They meet at a law school moot court thing. And um, the mother says to her, aren't there any interesting Jewish men in the law school? And you never see him again. That's heartbreak. That's heartbreak. You, cared, you liked him. You cared about him. I loved him. Wow. How long were you with him? him? A semester. Right. A That's year, enough. A year. Young. A year of, you know, sort of make-believe and thinking that life made sense. A semester's a big chapter of your life when you're young. Big chapter of your life. And especially when you've never really been in love before. You don't get over that. You don't get over that hurt. It takes a long, 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 long What did you time. fall in love with about Sydney? Comfort, kindness, and... Good partner. Good partner, friendship, intelligence. But I'm not sure he could have ever broken my heart. I think you break your heart one time. Do you? I think if you're someone who becomes other people, then you become capable of other oh, lives. Oh, that's different. But I I'm mean, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not. on all stages of a rocket. Oh, I see. And that I, stage falls no, I'm off pretty and much I go to the this same. level. I'm pretty the same, much the same person. I'm not. So you mean you change? I'm the same person I was 50 years ago. I'm just old. Coming up, Sheila Nevins talks about being raised by a communist. Sheila Nevins has nurtured many documentary filmmakers. Joe Berlinger, creator of HBO's Paradise Lost, is one of them. His films tell a shocking story of justice denied. Three boys in the Bible Belt wrongfully convicted of ritual sexual abuse and murder. Berlinger said the story haunted him. You know, my first kid was born while we were editing this film, and I would be sitting, you know, at the editing bay looking at the most horrific autopsy photos and crime scene footage. You know, I would go home at night after having these images like emblazoned on your brain, and I would drop the, you know, the door of the crib and pick up my new infant who was just arrived a few months ago. And every hallmark that my child would go through, you know, kindergarten, middle school, high school, I'd think, my God, these guys are still rotting in prison. I just felt we had a, you know, we had a moral obligation to keep telling the story. Listen to the full conversation at heresthething.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Sheila Nevin's nearly four-decade stewardship of HBO documentaries has helped usher in a golden age for the form. But when she started, the very word documentary could doom a project to obscurity. I think that uh, docus have become hot. When I began in this business, we didn't even want to use the word documentary. When we did promos for films, we would call them docutainment. We invented this <laughs> lunatic word because we were afraid that if we said documentary, people would feel that it was for the elite and that it was about politics and that it was not going to be about human stories. And so we, we hid behind this word docutainment. And then slowly but surely, it took a good 20, 25 years, we began to say, well, maybe it's not such a dirty word. And reality programming sort of said real people can be interesting in a trivial way. Now, how do we take that 
real people thing and bring it back to real stories that have heart and soul. So then somehow it went docutainment, reality TV, yay, documentary, go for it. Say that real people, people without celebrity, people who are trying to survive in a complicated world. And say in their own words. And say it in their own words. Right. And not either scripted. have to have scripted or apologize for it, but let it go for itself. So if a woman would be living on a minimum wage, for instance, um, we would almost cast that woman to be someone who could tell that story. I got three kids. I'm working in a nursing home. I'm making $7 an hour. I got to have three jobs. My husband is on drugs. He's left me. We, we felt we could tell those stories with real people. We didn't have to use narrative, all due respect, but we could, we could elevate the common man's story and use the word documentary. And I think they became somewhat precious and difficult um, and, and had parody at festivals, began to have parody at festivals with narrative. So suddenly, Toronto would have a whole section on documentary. Sundance was actually the first. Uh, but docus at that time were hot docs. They had their own festivals. They were not part of festivals that had actors and famous people. And, you know, they were sort of an offshoot. I think now docus have gotten parody. But is it safe to say, I'd love to hear your viewpoint about this, that, uh, and not that it's a seller's market now, but is it tougher for you to find what you want? It's so competitive? It's horrifying. Right. It's, it's, it's horrifying. In other words, your job is harder than it was 20 years My ago. My job is much harder because, first of all, a lot of people have monopoly money, and I'm still playing with real cash. So I really can't play the <laughs> How monopoly. So? Well, Netflix has tons of dollars. Right. And, and they, you don't? No. Not for docus. No. Can why, I why, why is that? The company is the company's mission or what have you? I can't speak for the company. Okay. I'm a, a peon. I would say that um, it's not a high priority. Stars rule and series They still rule. view themselves as, as almost like a studio. I think so. I think the development of a series is where the money's at. It's where the sales are at. Game of a Thrones. One shot. Yeah. They're chasing oh. that. <laughs> That's where they're there. Yeah. They're not there. If you took docus off HBO, I think they have a million places to go. Ten years ago, if you took docus off HBO, you wouldn't have a place to find them. Right. So it's tough. It's really tough. Let's talk about benzos. You say dependent but not addicted. I know. It's complicated, isn't right. it? Help us understand that. I'm not sure it's accurate, but I know that I have never changed the dosage in 40 years. And it still helps you? I, th I don't know whether it helps me. In the sense that I think the color is working or right. whether it's a police But I don't want to know because I can't sleep. And if I take two oranges, one blue, and one white, I go to sleep. So what the fuck do I care Tell me what those working? are because I'm having insomnia. I want to sleep too. Clonopin, Ambien. I fear that one. Ambien doesn't help me. That's Why like, do you fear Clonopin? Because I was told that that's like one of the, that and Wellbutrin are like really heavy, heavy anti No, Wellbutrin is an antidepressant and Clonopin is a benzo. Yeah. See, I believe that one day they'll discover that anxious people like myself are missing whatever that chemical is. Why should anxiety be different than epilepsy or diabetes? Diabetes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't really understand it. I made peace with it because I don't think I could have functioned otherwise. I don't think I could have talked back. I don't think I could have flown as much as I did. I don't think I could have... Handled I, the stress I, of your career. I don't think I could have done it. Can I tell you about my audiobook? Um, let's pause for a moment Okay. for Sheila to tell us about her audiobook. Now, the reason I'm doing that is because I'm a salesman and I'm a hooker. Oh, I'm aware of that. To distance myself even further from, from some of the characters in this book, I was writing a poem about 
Larry Kramer, who I love. And uh, Christine Baranski came to my house in the country to celebrate Larry's 80th birthday. And I had never read Larry this poem. There wasn't really a whole book yet. And so I gave him the poem to read, and he kissed me. And then Christine sat on the couch next to him, and I thought it was a eureka moment. I thought, I got it. I'm going to get well-known people to read my book, and that will distance everything even further. And I said, Christine, would you read the Larry Kramer one? She said, of course I would. I said, would you read it on an audio book? She said, of course I would. So did you play the usual studio executive game and start calling everybody and say, Christine's in, are you in? No, I didn't didn't do do that. that. I I sent the galleys of the book, and I texted people like Alan Alder and Whoopi and Meryl Streep and— and I would say 95, I never went to an agent, I never went to a manager. I just went direct. And absolutely everybody pretty much said yes. Meryl Streep wrote me a letter. I don't even know her that well. She said, um, you wrote a great book. I want to read this story. Tell me where and when. Well, I mean, I went running up and down the halls of HBO. Say, but then I thought it's a joke. Somebody sent it and that was just, you know... But sure enough, when I called, we made an appointment. She came in. It was pouring, no entourage. Read the story. It was about my mother. When she said my mother's voice, I heard my mother. Let's talk about that. Your childhood and how you grew up. Were you a moviegoer? No, a I wasn't allowed the to ballet? watch television. No, no, no. What was it like? My mother was a communist. She had gone to school with Ethel Rosenberg. And so when Ethel Rosenberg was assassinated or whatever the word is in the electric chair, I thought any minute they were coming to take my my mother. Uh, My best friend was Billy, and his father was the editor of The Daily Worker. And I came home one day Where did you grow up? 2nd Avenue and 6th Street. My father was a postman. Up on the Lower East Side? Yeah, I'm a poor girl. See, that's why I wrote the book. Because everybody thought I went to Barnard, I went to Yale, I went to performing arts. Ritzy, titsy, 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 doorman. You clawed your way to the top. You're the Jewish Eve Harrington. No, I was very good. <laughs> I didn't claw my way. I was fucking good. Yeah, and I'm oh, still that's what good. I mean. I'm really smart. And I'm smart about what people might watch. And I'm smart about self-criticism. And I'm happy to be wrong as long as I'm right more than So how I'm did wrong. you end up in this business? With it? What did your father do for a living? My father was a postman and a bookie. Oh, how did you end up in this business with no Because I went to the high school. You went to, you went to, you went to drama school. No, but I majored in directing at Yale okay. because I knew I was not a good actress. I thought that I would, and I was a terrible dancer. I thought that I would have been good at storytelling and knowing when it was wrong and when it was right. I had a great teacher at Yale who we, we also had to take acting classes, and she said to me, you are the perfect director because you're always watching. And I thought, that's true. I'm always, wa- I'm always looking in. I'm always watching. Taxi Cab Confessions, which we did, was an example of a show that came from observations. Like, I found that when I was in a taxi, I knew I'd never see that person again. I could tell them things I wouldn't tell anybody else. I thought, if I'm doing this, other people can be doing this. Why don't we do Taxi Cab Confessions and take the car out at 5 and go through the night? And then we did it. And there were great stories, great secret stories that people tell. And then we would ask them to sign a release, and very often they didn't. Some of the best stories are hidden in the lock and key. Now, here's the last thing I want to say to you. You went to Barnard. 
Yes. And you went to Yale. Yes. And you've had this great career. Yes. And you've won all these awards. Yes. And your name is synonymous with the highest level of documentary filmmaking of the last 30, 35 Will years. Will you deliver my memorial service? I, I would consider it. If, okay, I'm, if, I, if I'm available, Do you have to get there. paid? No, no, no. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll put you down on the list. I appreciate your career. No, That's I, why you're here. Okay. But, but last but not least, there's something about you. There's this woman thing about you. You go and you make this effort and the uh, the beautification and the kind of corrections and all this other stuff. And, and you look phenomenal, by the way. Yeah. But I just want to say there's a thing about you. You know, you bathe in this world of the stark and the real. But there's a part of me that yeah, yeah. I think you want to be in love again. I see really? you in a bathrobe on a terrace <laughs> in Paris. And you're just having the longest kiss yeah. In the world. Is that what you want? Is it is you I do you want to fall in love again? I already have that actually. I don't really want to be in a bathrobe on a terrace and it's a good you thing don't. you're not my psychiatrist. You don't. No. You don't want to be in love again and no. have a passion? Oh no. Romance. No, you don't. I want to make the best documentary in the world. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's all I want. I just offered I want people you to buy love, my book. romance, bathrobe, Paris. And you'd no. rather make that. I want to make a docu that wins a prize. We're gonna stop right there because that's why you're the greatest. I don't want that. You just don't even I go there. Make, I want Alexandra's docu to win awards. I want it to make people know about the the beginning of the founding fathers and the dream of the country. That's what I want to do. I mean, I'm not square and stupid and idealistic. More than anything. More than anything. What do I want? What do you want is to make great movies. Yeah. That's it. I think that's true. It makes me almost want to cry when you say that because isn't that sad? No. I should want something else, matter? a dress or a jewel or a piece of something. I don't want anything. I don't you, even go, you, I don't even like, I mean, ask anyone. I don't want anything. You want to know something? You're clear. Yeah. I'm very clear. What's the best thing in this life as we get older than to be clear? I'm I said, clear. That I, when I looked at my wife and as people said to me, what do you want? I go, yeah. I want to have kids and I want to have a family. And you so, have it. And I'm 59 years old and I have three kids, three and under. Yeah, but I'm 59. I'm 20 years older than you. Who gives a fuck about how old you are? If a flower pot falls on your head and you're 12, it's over anyway. That's right. I mean, you know, it's today, it's now, it's this moment, and it's the docu you make. Fair enough? The work is all Sheila Nevins wants to be remembered for. Asked what she'd like carved on her tombstone, she responded, quote, she should have gone on forever. This is Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing comes from WNYC Studios. WNYC Studios.